We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. And we're very, very pissed off. First, I've never really understood the necessity on the internet to scream first. Like somebody posts a topic or a thread or something, a discussion point, and then people have to, they have nothing to add other than the fact that, that yes, indeed, you were the first person to join the group. So what? I mean, are you so, so desperate to do something and this is it? Because really, I mean, to me... I feel like I have to be within the first 10 commenters because I've written something really clever and I want people to read it. I don't understand this notion of I have nothing to say and I want people to read it, right? Like, hey, everybody, I'm a total tool. Look at me. I mean, isn't that an instinct that most people have hidden don't most people's tool identification instinct, isn't that buried? Or, or are there just so many people? And, and does anybody, I mean, I know, you know, not everybody's like me as much as they should be, but is anybody, I mean, what's, what's the, what possible rationale can you, can you work up for yourself unless Unless your name is your website and you're just trying to promote it and maybe you think if you are first, people will see your website. But even then, that's got to just breed hatred for you, right? I mean, there's just no way you can, you can continue doing that with any amount of regularity and not have people just think you're a moron. And maybe people just don't think that far ahead. Maybe that all they're consumed with is first. And I really blame uh, Eft Company, the uh, old website, for those of you who don't know. Uh, there was a company whose who's whole business model, this is a genius business model, by the way, is they would take anonymous tips uh, from insiders, folks who worked at the company, and they would say... Um, you know, this is this company is going belly up, right? Or or it's having extreme hardships, and it's going to minutes before it goes belly up. And I'll just tell you, you know, I'm I can't think that my dad's going to listen to this podcast. But the the website was really called Fucked Company. What the business model was though is you could post whatever you wanted for free, but if you were a business, you could subscribe for money to the website, and then you would get all this other dirt that was not public on the website, but other things that they had heard and other industry sources and whatnot. It's a, it's a, it's a neat idea. You know, if you really want to hear what the rumor mill is saying about your company, I would, I would sign up for that. I mean, because you're not talking about very much money. You're talking about I don't know, 0.01% of your marketing budget goes to what's the rumor mill saying about us from a source that is tapped deep into the rumor mill. Hey, if I was that company, I'd totally do it. 
Well, today is a day of firsts. Well, at least we're going to be talking about firsts. That's really not much of a first for this one. And in fact, this is episode five. Look at me. I finally got uh, five episodes. I beat, I beat uh, my under, my over-under, because I thought I was only going to do four. Not that I wanted only to do four, but I feel like, you know, every project I've ever done, I get going strong and I've got like two or three ideas right out of the gate and then just blammo, you realize you don't have enough ideas for a full movie or anything or a novel or whatever. So in a way, I guess this makes more sense, you know, this medium, because it's all about little ideas, right? You know, I just do a little idea for an hour and then it's over with. Not even an hour, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, whatever. Um, and then and then we're done. And then next week we'll do a whole bunch of other little ideas. And they don't all have to make sense. It doesn't have to flow together. I mean, it's just kind of under one big, vague umbrella. I decided one of the things about this podcast I was going to change was I'm going to allow stuff in here that's not purely on the theme. I just figured, you know, who cares, really? Again, I'm doing this just for me, so I can do it however I want. Um, but... You know, and, and I didn't want it to be too topical because I figure maybe somebody at some point will listen to something I do and I'll mention something weird in the news and then people will be like, who? What is that? I don't remember this story. I don't know. Don't care. So I've tried to keep politics and, and other things out of it as much as humanly possible. But one of the things I wanted to talk about that's off topic today uh, is uh, Michael Vick the guy who was, see now, all those people who are listening to this now are like, yeah, yeah, we know who Michael Vick is, but all those people listening to this, you know, two years in the future may not. Um, so Michael Vick is the guy who is the superstar football player who funded uh, dogfighting you know, well, camps or, or a team or what, I don't know exactly how you, the, the, what they call themselves. Uh, he funded that and then he got caught and then he got sent to jail and and uh, there's been a lot of talk lately about, well, should he even be l- allowed in, back into the NFL? And at this point, he is, and he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles, and uh, we're, their season hasn't started yet, so we'll see the reaction. You know, wh- what people are saying is that the, the Eagles are one of those teams that a lot of people love to hate, uh, I, I've never found that. I mean, I'm not super into football, but I, I, you know, the Dallas Cowboys really are the only team that, um, that I think people really hate, you know, who are not fans. But who knows? We'll see. We'll see how the Eagles do with him. But this whole debate about should Michael Vick even be allowed to play again is, it seems, it seems like this should be an opportunity for, the free market system, right? Like, why should it be just one person's decision whether or not he gets to play? Let him play. If a team thinks they can take the PR hit by hiring him, then they'll do it. If people don't show up to their games, then they'll realize it was a mistake. Although, you know, and, and of course, in this sort of, you know, rainbow unicorn version of my world, I would love it if the people spoke and they said, F you, we're not doing this, we're not supporting him, um, you know, we're just not going to do it. And then they said, oh, gosh, this was a bad idea. Uh, he is a pariah. He is ruining our organization. And then fire him or something. 
but I can almost guarantee you that ain't going to happen because I remember when Latrell Sprewell was playing basketball for the uh, Oakland, uh, the Golden State Warriors up there in Oakland, and he was getting in fights with his coach. He was choking his coach. And then they just said, oh, okay, we'll trade you to the Knicks. And um, that that year he got traded to the Knicks, I was in New Jersey and watching him play for the Knicks. And, and I said, uh, boy, you know, did are the fans going to embrace him? Cause he's had so all these personnel problems and everything. And the guy just turned to me and said, look, they'll embrace the son of Sam if he has a good jump shot. So that's the way sports fans are. I think they, they will put aside many problems that you have in your personal life. If you're a good player. And in the end, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what people think you know, I mean, the, the man has lost a tremendous amount of money already by being thrown in jail because certainly his sponsors are not going to pick him up anymore. There's no way they're doing that. And we're looking at, and they were saying that before he went to jail, he had $135 million worth of income coming, right? Whether it's with the team and endorsements, and that's not in one year, that's I, that's whatever, adding up all the contracts together. And now he's starting over at like $6 million or something or eight or whatever with the Eagles. So the guy has lost a tremendous amount of money. And and the, the way people are talking, they're, they're, it makes them sound like if this guy gets any money, he's going to start up dogfighting again. Now, mind you, the the decision to keep dogfighting when you have $135 million riding, okay, that was a really bad move. That's a dumb move, right? I mean, I don't care. If, if I have $135 million potentially coming in, I'm going to stop all illegal activity. And I think that's really the thing that everybody's forgetting is dogfighting is illegal, right? He knows it's illegal. I can guarantee you Michael Vick knows dogfighting is illegal. I mean, there's just, you know, clearly where they have these things, uh, the way people sort of talk in hushed tones about it. There is no way he doesn't know this is illegal, right? Come on. So at the very worst, you got to say you did a dopey move and continued to fund this. And look, I understand you've got friends and they need to make money and, and you're making $135 million. You can afford to spend 60 grand a year on every single one of your friends and hire them to do something else. Because I can't imagine they were making so much money at dogfighting that you couldn't pay them a decent salary to do something in your organization. I don't know what it would be. Keep a groundskeeper. I don't know. But just divest yourself of dogfighting when you've got that much divest yourself of all illegal activity when you've got that much riding on it because there's no way it's worth it right like i don't care what kind of rush you get i don't care what kind of high you get off of it there's got to be a way you can replace that with the money you have but as much as i don't care about michael vick what i do care about is what happened it was either right before or right after he got signed by the Eagles. And um, most of the uh, people who will listen to this will not be over the age of 65. So I'm guessing you didn't see 60 Minutes. Neither did I. But everything I heard about it was 
they brought in, uh, I believe it was James Brown, the the uh, the sports commentator, not the Godfather of Soul, because well, he's clearly been dead a long time. And but that would have been an awesome interview too. Bring in James Brown, yeah, 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 yeah. That would have been the best. And then just just Michael Vick being like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Ow, get down. Oh. Yeah, that would have been great. Hot pants. <laughs> Right, and it would be even better if you could actually understand what James Brown was saying, but it was just ridiculous. Bring on the funk! Uh, he didn't quit it! You know, that would that would be just the greatest interview ever, and, we're, and uh, 60 Minutes would be like, why did we bring him in? Well, anyway, so, that, and that's a good question. Why did we bring him in? Now, uh, unfortunately, Ed Bradley, who uh, you might remember as the black guy from 60 Minutes, he unfortunately passed away... Uh, I don't know, at least a year ago, maybe two or three years ago. I don't know. But anyway, um, so, you know, there's that thing, that that sort of weird veiled racism where any embattled uh, African-American individual can't be interviewed by a white guy. I don't know why. Uh, but of course, Ed Bradley was awesome, I- except for the earring. I didn't like the Ed Bradley earring. I thought that was always strange. But they brought in James Brown, who is, I think he's on uh, CBS Sports, and he does a lot of the halftime shows and whatnot, and he, they brought him in because he's an African-American, he knows about football. But here's the sad bit of it. They shouldn't have put him on 60 Minutes. Because 60 Minutes, I mean, is just, it's, it's really the wrong demographic, because it's old people, right? It's, it's old people who don't care about Michael Vick one way or the other. They, they barely even know who the guy is. Maybe they saw him in the news or whatnot. But, you know, what happens to him is really not on their radar. So what you should have done is gone on someplace Larry King. Larry King actually would be the best place to go because uh, I, I would say a wider range demographically watch it. And he asks softball questions. He's never going to challenge you on anything. You know, and Larry King drives me insane because he thinks he is so proud of himself for asking Paris Hilton what biblical passages she read in prison. And that like, like this is the big hard hitting follow up question, Larry, that you finally answer. Because most of the time the guest sits across from Larry and he goes, well, you know, Larry, I ate the man's brain and it was quite delicious. Chattanooga, Tennessee, you're on the air. There's no follow-up. There's no challenging of the other person. There's no, did I hear you say that correctly? There's none of that. And that's why he gets guests. That's why he does it. Now, personally, if it was me, that was this would just rot my soul inside. But Larry is 9,000 years old, and perhaps whatever soul he had, he's traded for this Cush CNN gig, which would be an interesting deal with the devil, right? Um, because that's a great devil marketing plan. Because the devil says to Larry King, Larry says, I want to be a great broadcaster. Larry says, okay, or the devil says, okay, I'll trade you for your soul, and you can never ask a tough follow-up question. And then the devil makes the deal with all these other people, like Michael Vick, and says, you can be a great football player, and when you screw up, we've got this awesome place where you can do your uh, PR campaign, the Larry King, because I have his soul too. But that's pro- that did not happen because he went on 60 Minutes. And the real sad part of this is 60 Minutes is the exact opposite 
of the Larry King Show. It is nothing but hard-hitting questions. And guys, you know, um, there's always that joke of like, uh, you know, just the, the 60 Minutes guys just chasing down these people, running after them, you know, asking these questions, which is about as, as opposite of Larry as you can get. Uh, if Larry has to stand to ask a question, it's an enormous effort. Um, he's certainly not going to be chasing anybody down. But so why they went there, I don't understand. But the sad part of it all is, is that 60 Minutes is known for this hard-hitting journalism. Oh, wait, I know why they did it. Because CBS Sports has an enormous contract with the NFL. And CBS, uh, 60 Minutes, has been on CBS for the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. Um, So somebody probably with the NFL said, hey, CBS Sports, you know, it would look fondly we would look fondly on you guys, you know, when it comes time to renew your football contract, if uh, you could do some stuff with us and uh, do a whole puff piece about uh, Michael Vick and he can talk about how sorry he is and you can do shots of his PR campaign about talking to kids about how much he loves dogs and how much they should love dogs and all this stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's the only thing, that's the only reason this, this makes any sense of all. And what's so sad about this whole deal is Don Hewitt, the guy who created 60 Minutes, died like the day after they did the interview and it aired. And it's sad because he really should have died like the day before because what they did on 60 Minutes is everything he was against. And... Uh, you know, I just, they played an old interview of him on Fresh Air the other day, and he talked about how just all the news magazines just totally blow because there's just not enough news to go around and they all suck. And, and he was really concerned when he retired, when he's been out of 60 Minutes for a few years now. Uh, but when he retired, he was really concerned that this sort of journalism was gonna go away. And, and what's so interesting about that is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air, sort of, I think she, she chastises him a little bit for saying, oh, do you, re- are you so full of yourself that you think that you and Mike Wallace are the beacons of light in the, you know, uh, fog of war here? Uh, I use that wrong, whatever. Uh, that, you know, all has gone to hell when you retire. And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it did. So it's a mess. So anyway, that's Michael Vick. Um, we shall see uh, in the coming months uh, how, you know, if, if anything is changed um, by uh, him signing with the Eagles. And it'll be interesting to see performance-wise what he did um, and, and how bad of a shape he is in terms of his performance. You know, so it'll be interesting to see what a, what, what a year behind bars will do to an athlete whether it's the, the kiss of death or does it make any difference at all? Well, we'll see. But let's get today's topic, because today's topic I, I feel very um, strongly about, as all of the, our topics. Uh, today we're talking about firsts. You know, the first time you do anything, or the first time somebody does something. And the first time you do anything is scary as hell. Uh, because, you know, it, it's unless you've done it, unless you know people who have done it a million times, 
and you've studied, even if you've studied, if you've done, if you've practiced, if you've done this the first time you do it. I mean, I remember the first time I got contact lenses. They wouldn't let me leave until I could put it in my eye. And that's a crazy thing to put in that, that, I mean, we spend our whole lives trying not to put things in our eye. And then, you know, you have to sit there in this room and jab this piece of plastic into your eye. It's a crazy idea. Um, and, you know, honestly, I had, you know, some comfort in knowing that this had been going on for several years, many years. I don't know when contact lenses were invented. I don't care. But years and years have passed. And my own mother used to wear them occasionally. So I knew it was fine. It was safe, right? It's not like I was sticking a jalapeno in my eye. But for the first guy who did wore contact lenses, I can't imagine what that was like. You're going to, you want me to do what? Are you going to stick this in my eye? The only way I can imagine anybody wearing contact lenses for the first time is the guy who invents it does it. And he sticks them right in his eye. That's the only way I could see anybody signing off on this. It's like, hey, Bob, where's your glasses? Uh, And why are your eyes bloodshot? And why are you tearing constantly? Uh, No reason. You know, I mean, that's that seems and all of those firsts, like the real, real first, first things like um, uh, Wright Brothers flying a plane. Yeah. okay, I'm going to get this thing made out of balsa wood and nylon and I'm going to fly up in the air and not just right into the earth. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I'll get right on that, dude. Um, So it is it is a strange concept to to think of that first guy and boy you gotta just have nerves of steel to be that first guy especially all, like the dangerous stuff you know bungee jumping skydiving uh, um, shot into space you know all that stuff it's like wow man you really and it, it seems like you almost have to have a death wish right like because how safe could this be i mean there were things that you know, people were doing with the bungee jumping. You would hear people, you know, even long after bungee jumping was established, people would, they they would cut the bungee cords the exact length of the drop to the canyon minus six feet for, you know, whoever was doing it, not understanding that, of course, the bungee, ch- the bungee cord stretches and then crushes you into the ground and then stretches and then pulls you back up and then smacks you back down again and pulls you back up. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, I couldn't imagine being the first. And, and in fact, um, I got the LASIK eye surgery and one of our friends had to do it before I would even do it. I mean, mind you, the place I went, I think they, they told me I was like number 30 of the day. I mean, these people are moving through and, and even I didn't want to do it unless I knew somebody who had done it at this place and they had good results with it. So when you have your first time, it it's weird. Like there there are things there are things where it's good to have a good first time, and then there are things that are bad to have a first time. Um, you know, I, certainly all the good things, all the times where it's bad to have a good first time, are all your vices, right? Like if you if you do drugs and you have a horrible first time then it'll probably put you off drugs and you probably won't want to do that again. How anybody ever smokes, like picks it up as a habit, 
I don't understand at all because I don't know anybody, anybody who ever had a good first time smoking. Nobody. And yet millions of people smoke. And yet everybody who smokes, they suck it in. They just cough like crazy. I've smoked. I've tried smoking a couple of times, mostly for uh, theater roles and things like that. It's awful. It's a and and yet you know people get addicted to the nicotine, and so they have to keep it going. But you don't get addicted to the nicotine off just the one you know cigarette that you have. You have to do it several times and make it a bit of a habit in order to get that into your system to the point where you you know you start craving it and twitching about it and all this stuff. I don't I just don't if anybody can explain it to me, I would love to know how you get addicted to smoking because it doesn't make any sense at all. And it's not even like smoking gets you much, right? Like I at the times I smoked, I sort of I didn't really get high or I didn't get this or that and I just just like, eh. Now drinking on the other hand you have one drink, you know, as an amateur on an empty stomach and bammo, you feel it. And that's a, that is a different sensation. Smoking, I'm just like, yeah, my lungs hurt. My throat hurts. Um, everything I own stinks. Um, yeah, what's the appeal to this again? So I, I don't know. I don't know how people get hooked into that. Uh, other things, you know, see so now everything else, right? Oh, oh, let me tell you, gambling. Gambling was, we had a good first time gambling, and that was a disaster. We went to uh, uh, Las Vegas, and we walked into the casino. We're in the casino like five minutes, just sort of wandering around, and we walk up to a video poker table. And uh, the guy I was with, he was like, well, how does this work? And I had played video poker on my computer a bunch of times. But never for money. It was always just, you know, virtual video poker. So it really didn't mean anything. So I was like, well, you know, it's, you put in your quarter. So he puts in the quarter. And you hit the button and it deals you five cards. And then you click on the ones you want to keep. And then you say draw. And then it gives you more cards. First hand, right out the box, full house. And then it just, this was back in the days. This is, uh, this is back in the days when they used to spit out money. I tell you, man, I understand if you're a big winner on a slot machine, it can be a little daunting to carry around an enormous bucket of quarters. Or even if you just want to play a lot and you have an enormous bucket of quarters to play with, it can be daunting. But, oh, it's so gratifying. Oh, man. when the, You know, because nowadays, for those of you who don't play slot machines, nowadays um, what they do is you put in your money or your credit card or whatever, and then it spits out a piece of paper if you win. And then you have to go to the cashier and turn in the piece of paper, and then you get your money. It is the... Ugh. For those people who who don't... who were not young enough to remember money when it came out of the slot machine, they probably don't care. It's no big whoop to them. And certainly generations from now, they, they won't matter a dip of difference to them. But boy... I loved it. It was so great. I mean, it was so gratifying when the when the stuff would come out. And it was clang, 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 and it was physical, and you could touch it and scoop it into your ball. Oh, so great. Uh, but you can see this is a problem now, uh, the gambling here, because we had one successful outing, our first successful outing, 
And we did that sucker's move where we just said, well, this is free money. I don't know. I don't know why everybody doesn't do this. It's just you go in, you put it in a quarter, you get two fifty back. Awesome! This is just this is genius. We I, we should do this every day. We're gonna we're gonna quit our jobs. We're gonna move to Vegas, and we're just gonna you know gamble professionally because it's free money. And then of course we proceeded to lose all the money we had brought with us fairly quickly. So another thing that that people don't get is they, they a lot of times people think things are way easier than they really are, right? Like you've seen people do it or, you know, you don't understand it. So you just think, oh, well, this is fine. You know, I I don't have any problem doing this for the first time. I'm just going to hop on this bike or this do the get up on stage or whatever. Just do it. Yeah, it's fine. I saw, yeah, I've seen some people do it. I can do that. Yeah, well, what and then what happens is they get up, they do the thing, they're horrible at it, right? This is these are the times when it's terrible to be terrible at something um, for the first time because then it just makes you want to give up, right? And you're like, I don't, I don't want to do this. But what you don't understand is, and what most people don't understand is, everything that you do, it takes practice, right? I mean, you're not going to be great at anything right out of the right out of the what is that? The lane, the gate, the thing. For your first time, it, it needs practice. And uh, there was somebody, I think it was Adam Carolla or Howard Stern or something, was, was saying how, oh, it was Howard Stern, yeah, how he was saying that you need 10,000 hours of doing anything before you can get really good at it. And here I was struggling with five podcasts. But actually, you know what, that is one of the reasons why I kept doing the podcast was I was not horrified by the first one. So I thought, oh, yeah, okay, this is actually not terrible. And, you know, low effort and all that other stuff. So one of the things that that people forget in that whole thing of getting better is that TV shows, TV shows do their first season. And I was going to say this in the Reconsider episode, but I guess it works better here. You look at a first season of a TV show, especially anything Joss Whedon, it's usually terrible, right? Like, and it's weird, too, because you think, especially like Joss Whedon, you would, if you're a fan of Buffy or Firefly or... Was it Firefly or Serenity? Which one? Well, anyway, if you were a fan of those, then you just think, well, Dollhouse should be great. But, you know, we watched the first season of it, and it was okay, but certainly towards that end of that first season, it was getting significantly better than where it started. And that's where you lose people. I mean, if you put out... This is another problem with firsts, is you only got one chance to make a first impression, right? And if your first impression blows... You know, the, people are going to write you off right there. And and that's the thing is and people don't consider this when they submit work, um, you know, whether it's a, a screenplay or a chapter for a, a novel that they're trying to get published or whatever. People will look at those that first page or those first couple of pages and they'll be like – They'll, they'll make that judgment right there, right? Like, and especially uh, when I used to scout music, I would, I, a lot of times I wouldn't sit through, you know, a three minute song. I wouldn't even sit through two minutes of a song. If the, if it started out bad, I was like, well, it's not going to get any better. I mean, it's just going to be like this the rest of the way. And so many people, I remember when people would give me demo tapes and they would, they would order the songs like it was a real album. Cause the way you order songs on a real album is you put 
the first, uh, I, and there's no science to this, but this is just the way record people do it, and I don't really understand why, because it really doesn't make a damn bit of difference. But they always put the first single first on the on the album, but yet the best song was the third song. And so what they would do is they would release the first song, and as a consumer it makes sense, because... You would, you would hear the first song, you'd be like, oh, this is a good song, but is it the only good song on the album? And so you would have to, you know, uh, so you'd wait for the second song to be released, which the radio person knew was even better than the first song. So now you felt like it was building momentum, and you were like, aha, the first one was good, but the second one's even better. Why they order those songs that way I, I don't, on the album, I don't know, but you can I mean, go through your album collection. It's almost that way every single time. Uh, but I knew bands that would try to order their songs that way. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. Guys, look, no one's going to spend time listening to this. You know, because that's the thing is people think like, well, I'm going to hand my demo package to this guy and he's going to listen through the whole thing. He's going to pour over my bio that I write. No, they're going to look at it for a minute and then if it's not good, if that one minute doesn't grab them, then they'll just chuck it. There's a, a story going around on the internet now about this movie called The Beaver. It's about this guy who has a beaver puppet that he does stuff with. Anyway, Mel Gibson is signed on to be the guy with the beaver puppet, and I don't know why. And it's directed by Jodie Foster, and she plays his wife or something in it. But they say that one of the reasons why this movie is getting made is that it's a really great opening. And when you're trying to sell something, that's all you've got is that opening. And if you don't have, if you're not tight with that opening, and especially that's why we have elevator pitches, right? Like the the pitch that you try to give to someone as you're going up in the elevator, because that's how much time you have to keep somebody's attention. And so that's why you have to say things like, it's Star Wars meets um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Which, that's a terrible idea. You wind up with crawl or something in the meantime. Anyway, um, so, so yeah, you only get that first impression. And so many, and, and, and everybody judges you on the first impression, how you look. I, I apparently, I have been told I make a terrible first impression. Now, why people continue to deal with me, I guess, is because they like Miriam, maybe? I don't know. Um, but then I've also been told I make a good first impression and Miriam's the quiet one. And then we are, ba our balance starts to shift and we become the, the songs on the record, right? Like I'm a good first impression, but then you kind of get sick of me because you've heard that record too many damn times. And then the, the balance starts to shift where it's like, geez, I don't want to hear smells like teen spirit ever, ever ever again but yet i like that third song on nevermind who is now my wife miriam in this analogy and they want to listen and talk to her more because she's funny and, and interesting and cool and now i'm just this whiny annoying thing who gets mad at everything and waves his arms a lot and that was the other thing too i that's why i haven't told any of my friends about this podcast is because i'm sure they're sick of all this junk that i'm yelling about into this microphone already because it's it's this is nothing new, right? Like all those people who know me, they've hear, heard me yell about all this stuff 
a dozen times before. So they don't really need and – and I guess that's one of the reasons why I like sneaking in the, the topical stuff because if on the off chance they do hear it, hey, you know, he, he said something new. <laughs> Maybe I'll listen to that while I'm on the treadmill. By the way, I keep using the treadmill analogy just because – treadmill to me is what my hell looks like. I hate the treadmill. I hate doing cardio. It's boring. Um, my knees hurt. My shins hurt after 10 seconds. I don't want to do it. I don't, I do it occasionally because I feel like, uh, I, I got to those, there are those times where I got to run, be able to run to the airport if I have to. And, uh, yeah, so I just do it anyway and I suck it up. Oh, and what about the people who are the pioneers, right? Not the real pioneers who came across on the covered wagons. I mean, like the the smart people. Those folks, they got to be mad because um, there are a lot of things that that people, the innovators, do, especially in in the arts, um, where when they did it, it was groundbreaking, and especially in movies. Somebody will do like a camera shot or something, and it'll be super innovative. And then, like, like the classic example that w- that uh, we always think of is the uh, the shot where the guy is standing out in the middle of the rain, and he's something horrible has just happened, and he just looks. He, sorry, I can't. I, I was looking straight up. Maybe if I bend my knees, um, he looks straight up into the camera, which is hovering right above him, and he like screams or something like that. And the camera's right above, and you see the rain coming down. You know the shot I'm talking about. We've seen it way too many times, and now it's a cliche. Now it's just ridiculous. But that first time it was done. I bet you that was really damn cool. Like, everybody who saw it was like, wow, that is awesome. Uh, but now, and, and that guy who probably did it for the first time, he was like, that is totally awesome. I invented something new. And then after the 200th time, he was like, damn, I even I don't want to see this anymore. This is hacky and lame. Ugh. And then to be the guy who did invent the first. See, this is the other thing, too, is being the first at, at something and nowadays it's a little bit easier because it's all, you know, everybody's digital and keeping track of things on um on uh, Wikipedia and whatnot, but it's it, it's got to be a tough, you know, back in the day to be the guy who is the first person who did something. And I, let me I'll I'll tell you this story. So my grandfather claims that his father was the first one to start using blue lights on police cars. Okay. Now, look, I'm not trying to get a royalty check out of anything, but it's a fun story to tell at parties. But it sucks because there's always that idiot who always wants to challenge you on it and be like, no, and it's like, listen, dude, it's an amazing world. Amazing things happen all all the time. All right. It's not like I'm trying to ruin something. It's not like I'm trying to claim, you know, it's not like I'm suing anybody and I'm making this ridiculous claim to win a suit or something. Just look, just go along with it. All right. So now I have to do this 10-minute talk-up about, okay, now look, we have no proof of this. I'm not claiming anything. 
but here's the story I'm going to tell you, and maybe it's true, and maybe, you know, and at some point, it's almost like, like, I just don't even tell the story anymore. Unless I'm with people who, you know, can put up with my nonsense, I just don't even bother, because there's always that jerk-off who wants to crap on the, my point of, you know, me being the first who did something. So anyway... So anyway, so I'll tell you this story because, um, you know, you're not here to crap on my point, so why, why not? Um, so uh, the, the story my grandfather tells is um, uh, his father, who was uh, – now I'm getting this wrong. I think he was the chief of detectives. I know he was the chief of detectives at one point, and I think he might have even been the chief of police of Los Angeles uh, around the turn of the century. And he, he, this was when he was chief of detectives. He would um, go through this desolate piece of area of Los Angeles because back around the turn of the century, Los Angeles was not Los Angeles. It's not, it looked nothing like it does now. There were long stretches of nothing. And, um, and, I, and, and he didn't even live in LA. Um, uh, so he was driving along and this cop would pull him over. And he would see my grandfather and he'd be like, oh, or my great grandfather. And he would say, oh, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this was you. And, and this was a common speed trap. So people were getting pulled over all the time. And he's, oh, sorry, uh, George, I didn't realize it was you. And he would say, yeah, that's all right. You know, whatever. And this would happen a couple of times. Uh, and finally, the cop who was sitting at the speed trap said, I tell you what, why don't you just put a little blue light on the on the bottom of your bumper there, and then I'll see the blue light, and I know it's you, and then I'm, I won't pull you over anymore. And I don't know, I guess it caught on, or whatever, but you'll notice cop cars didn't always have blue lights on them. If you look at old black and white movies, they have just the one red light on the top of the car, that single domed light. I don't know when the rail of red and blue came into fashion, but, you know, hey, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. But that's the point of the story is it's so hard to say that you really were the first, right? Because there's just so much stuff that unless you, like, put it out there and make sure you document it, you know, like um, uh, Douglas Adams, he wrote a story in So Long and Thanks for All the Fish because it was his story and now people were starting to claim it for them and he was like, I gotta write this story in a book so I'll take it back and I'll say, yes, this is mine. I'm the one who invented this. And it happens all the time. Even people where it is well documented, they get their ideas ripped off and then somebody other claims, hey, I'm the inventor of this thing or that thing. Here's the thing also about being first, is everybody holds up the guy who did it first as if it was still the best, right? It's not. Just because you did it first does not mean you did it the best. And usually the one who is first, it's like your first time, right? You know, you you, you didn't perfect it right out the gate. Gate again? I don't know. You know, things have evolved. And you'll, you'll see this a lot in um, truck Come, you know, manufacturers. We were the first to do the bibbidi bah and have the this, you know, the Hemi engine and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah. So what? You were the first. Are you the best? Are you the most reliable? Are you the cheapest? I mean, what else you got going on? Music suffers from this greatly. Like all these people who were the first to do, you know, bring punk music to America or you know whatever. It's just like, yeah, but so what? I mean, and yet people who were the first. 
especially in music, get held up to this crazy high esteem. And, 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 oh, and movies. Oh, movies. Citizen Kane drives me insane, right? The fact how everybody rates Citizen Kane, you know, best movie of all time, just because it was influential. You know, you, you watch that movie now. They do that really herky-jerky 1930s speed acting. Hey, Dollface, let me tell you all about the, the big man Kane. Hey, what'd you say there, Kane? Well, you know, like, who ever heard anybody talk like that and said, oh, that's, that's the way we need everybody talking because that's the way people talk in real life. Like, I mean, it's idiotic. You know, it's, it, 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 it we're, we're, we're people in a room and they were just like, look, we've got, you know, people won't sit tight for more than a movie that's, you know, two hours long. So we got to talk all faster because we got 300 pages of dialogue and we got to power our way through it. Or, or were they like, screw reality. We want to do something that's hyper reality. We want to make everybody think that these people are super smart and they've got every idea right off the tip of their tongue and they're going to just going to plow it out like it's nothing. So. Anyway, oh yeah, Citizen Kane, right. So yeah, it, it was an innovator, but there's a ton of things in that movie that just don't hold up. So stop with it. Stop with it being the greatest movie of all time. Just because it was first doesn't mean it was the best. And and that's the problem with the arts too, is everybody holds up these guys and they say, well, he was such an innovator, but but you know, things progress. Things change. This is probably more stuff we could have done in the Reconsider episode. But yeah, just because you're the first doesn't mean you're the best. All right. Well, I guess that's it for this time. I'm very excited because uh, not only do I have one, not one, but two ideas for future podcasts. So I'm really looking forward into the future there. So uh, I can say with great certainty that for me and Tyler Durden and the music of Bright Brown, we will definitely do this one more time. See you then. <laughs>